0: You are listening to The Pulse, Rod Murray's e-learning tech podcast. Number 192, Liz Simon of General Assembly. Hi, this is Rod Murray. Welcome back to my podcast. That little piece was a clip from a song that was created by artificial intelligence. It's called Utopian Prince and it's from Juke Deck. You can create your own futuristic AI music at Juke Deck. Give it a try. Today's podcast episode is sponsored by D2L. You may know their main product, the Brightspace Learning Management System. I, of course, would only accept sponsorship from companies and products that I'm very fond of. So please check out their website at d2l.com slash podcast to learn more. I also invite you to follow me on Twitter. My handle is Rods Pods. As always, I post links to the things we talk about on my show notes website at www.rods.pulsepodcast.com. In this episode, I interview Liz Simon, who's the Chief Operating Officer of General Assembly. No, we're not talking about the General Assembly of the United Nations, GA is a pioneer in education and career transformation specializing in today's most in-demand skills such as web development, data design, business, and more. They began as a co-working space in 2011 and have grown into a global learning experience with campuses in 20 cities and over 35,000 graduates worldwide. We discussed Liz's background as a lawyer, how she was involved with the Obama administration and the U.S. Digital Service, Jay's audience are students wanting to learn a new skill or companies needing to retrain staff or create a pipeline of new talent. We talk about the impact of the pandemic on teaching methodologies, the program time commitment. Some of their courses uh, are three-month intensive learning, nine to five, five days a week. How they're differentiated with MOOCs. One main differentiation is that 90% of their graduates get a job in their field within three months. We talk about their partnerships and articulation agreements. So without further ado, here's my interview with Liz. Well, Liz, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me and my audience today. really interested to learn all about General Assembly. But before we get into that, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what your background is and how you got involved with uh, General Assembly.
1: Sure. And thanks, Rodney. It's great to be with you today. So my name is Liz Simon. I'm currently the Chief Operating Officer at General Assembly. General Assembly, for those of you who don't know, is an uh, education company that's focused on equipping people with high-demand skills. Um, we've been around for about a decade, and I'm sure we'll go into you know, GA and who we are and what we do in a bit more depth. But in terms of my background, I've been at GA now for about almost eight years. I joined the company when it was very early stage, just a post-Series B company, And I joined actually as the company's first lawyer and founding general counsel. So I'm a lawyer by training. I practiced law and private practice in D.C. for several years and then went to work in the Obama administration and came to GA directly from the Obama administration. And really, the the nexus there is that I was working on tech and immigration policy. uh, And I was spending a lot of time with tech companies who were having difficulty finding and attracting foreign, you know, with their foreign talent needs and getting talent from abroad. And that was, you know, one of the big policy issues that we were looking at with things like the startup visa and immigration reform. And, you know, I started looking around and thinking about the landscape of domestically what we are doing to build the talent that we need here and thinking about some of the, you know, especially post 2008 recession, employment trends, um, how we might do more to, you know, really build, you know, a, a, a base of talent here, and, and that's how I found GA. I met one of the founders through a mutual friend, and uh, through a series of random, which are always the way these things uh, happen. I uh, GA was actually just learning that it needed to be regulated as a school at the time and had blown through a couple of stop signs there and so needed somebody to help them come in and figure out how to operate properly as a school. And so that is actually what I was hired to do at first. Kind of morphed and grown a lot over the last eight years and since, since then. But that's, yes, that's the story of how I, how I came to GA. Yeah,
0: uh, it must have been exciting with uh, more of a startup uh, company like that. You know, you mentioned working for the Obama administration. Uh, it occurs to me, of course, that our federal government could use a lot of tech help. And I wasn't Obama that started the uh, digital U.S. digital service. Were you familiar it, with that?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I actually ran what was basically like a pilot or a beta test of the digital service. I it was called Entrepreneurs in Residence, and it was based. The model was though bring private sector tech expertise into the federal government to work on sort of well-defined short-term projects. And I ran one and it was the model that then became formalized as, you know, the US Digital Service, the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program, the things that, you know, got formalized as, you know, real like hiring mechanisms to, to, replicate that model and agencies across the government. So that's actually something I'm, I'm really proud of having had a small part in. Yeah,
0: it's such a great idea. I, yeah. just as a little aside, you know, one of my favorite podcasts to listen to is uh, This Week in Tech, Leo Laporte. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he often has a, um, a panelist. Um, his name is escaping me right now, but he was a former Googler one of the mm-hmm. early Googlers who, who then began to work for the US you know, Digital Service, I think he's still there, as a matter of fact. But it's a they could use all the help they can get, I'm sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you think about the, I mean, I spent a lot of time at GA and sort of you know thinking about you know companies' digital transformations so that the you know the government is uh you know definitely further behind on that journey and in, and truly in need of that help. So
0: so tell us about the company now. Uh to be honest, I hadn't been familiar with it. Of course, I'm really in the higher education space. So why don't you first tell us who your audience is? Who, who are your students typically? How would you yeah. describe them?
1: Yeah, so so first I'll say they really, you know, GA is kind of two sides of the marketplace of talent. If you think about so we have individuals who come to us on their own seeking to either up or reskill upskill you know in an existing job get a promotion or raise something like that and or change careers through a three-month intensive program that is tied to a job outcome at the end Um, or companies engage with us to up or reskill talent as part of their digital transformation initiatives and sometimes that looks like you know again reskilling or retooling people they have sometimes it looks like creating a pipeline of new talent into that company. Um, on average, though, across kind of all of the, those parts of the business, the average GA student is you know, 25 to 35 years old, typically somebody who has either a bachelor's or some college completion, some credits, sometimes an associate's or you know, two-year community college degree. Uh, And they, they've been out in the working world for, you know, a handful of years, maybe a couple of jobs and are looking for, you know, a career change or, you know, to, to change their career trajectory. So especially on the consumer side of our business, that's kind of the typical profile of students we see, again, those who, who, you know, often had a, you know, a liberal arts degree of some kind and are looking to change careers or just, you know, continue to grow in the, in the career that they have.
0: Got it. So has COVID changed your way of teaching? Did you have on ground and online courses?
1: So GA, which was founded in New York, um, so our original campus was there, you know, really grew through building a network of campuses around the world. And, and right now we have Nearly 40 locations, virtual and on-ground locations around the world. So across the US, also internationally, London, Australia, uh, Singapore, Canada, so English, English, you know, primarily English-speaking countries. And we always had some programs that were online, but the vast majority of the teaching that we did was in person. And COVID has obviously changed that. So all of our campuses remain closed today and have been for the past year. I mean, since March, 2020, yep. except for Singapore and Australia, where they've managed the pandemic differently than we have, <laughs> than we have in the U.S. Uh, so where those campuses are actually open, but the rest of our programming is is now 100% live online. So we've never had kind of a robust async online catalog. That's what I was wondering mod- the model is really is really all live online instructor led learning and so what's interesting though is that you know I do think we'll we'll definitely return to some level of in person you know teaching when we can but I I do think maybe the balance has been permanently shifted a bit in the in the direction of kind of hybrid or online instructor led given that one of the interesting things we've seen is that our Student net promoter scores have improved since we've moved fully online. So, I think you know that's a testament to kind of the quality of the experience that students are having, and I think probably some of the convenience and that they get from being able to do these programs from home um, and sure. have that experience in a more convenient way. So,
0: in uh, the university I work for, of course, like everybody, we moved. To what we called the emergency teaching with Zoom, <laughs> and some of our faculty had never taught online before. And I think most of us agree, especially in the instructional design arena, that uh, you know, staying hours on end on on Zoom is not the best way to learn. How has your teaching evolved? Uh, you, you mentioned hybrid. Uh, it's often hard to keep folks' attention in, in the physical classroom, let alone online. You know. So, how has that formed? How you that changes How you changed your curriculum or, or your style of teaching at all?
1: Yeah. So it's interesting. We had a lot of it, pattern recognition and experience teaching on Zoom, like teaching on Zoom, and we had live online immersive and part time programs already. So it was kind of just like, how do you take the playbook and teach everybody right quickly how to do this? A lot of the class is similar. I think there are more portions that are kind of like, you're, so you're not sitting on, you know, you're, you're, you're listening to lectures and stuff like that live or you're interacting with the instructors and your classmates via Slack and other tools. But, you know, I think it's about creating the balance where you have those moments where you can engage with the community, with your sort of classmates Via Slack and and Zoom and things like that, and and you also have time where you're off in breakouts or doing you know pair programming with a peer or working on things on your own on project based work or things like that. So it really is a mix. But I will say I think it was probably easier for us than it was for those in you know more traditional higher ed to kind of adapt what we were doing, which was already highly project based lots of kind of, you know, smaller group work, things like that that can be replicated in an online setting more easily, perhaps.
0: Now, I was on your uh, website looking at your course catalog mm-hmm. and uh, it showed 17 programs found online. I assume this is most of your online content right now. And so I see data science, software engineering, um, user experience design. Mm-hmm. In that space, I would have think... Uh, I think that you have a lot of competition with uh, Coursera and other MOOC-like courses. How do you differ? How do you compete? Uh, what what's your uh, what do you add to? Uh, because I I notice you you have a decent tuition. It's not it's not free.
1: Um, it's not free. So how no. do you
0: compete with uh, with programs like that?
1: Yeah, listen. I think low cost, lower cost, async. Products like the MOOCs, uh, you know, Udacity and Coursera, etc., have have a real place, right? And if you're thinking about kind of access and you know reaching the most number of people, I think what really differentiates GA is the outcome, right? Our programs are intended, especially our immersive programs, which come with an about fifteen thousand dollars sticker price. They are really outcomes focused. Um, it is about taking someone with no background in you know, a field like software engineering or data science or UX and helping them enter a new career in a period of three months, right? So that is an intensive learning journey. It's full-time for three months, nine to five, five days a week, and pairing up with the career coach who's dedicated to support your job search on the back end. And so over 90% of the students that go through those programs get a job in field within six months of graduation. That's that's, kind of the, the- the key impact metric that I think really sets us apart from kind of broader access programs. I mean, you know that the completion rates of those are much lower. I mean, I certainly couldn't change my career (laughs) via an online async program. Perhaps there are, there are those there that can, but I think especially in this moment in time when we at GA are thinking a lot, and I know others in higher ed too, are about how do we, particularly reach those who've been hardest hit by the pandemic, who, you know, truly need access to these skills and, you know, new pathways into high wage, high demand employment, like that requires more sort of supports, not less. So it really is kind of a, an, an the intensive model that we provide that actually is successful in generating those career change and mobility outcomes for students.
0: Right, right. Yeah, that's pretty intense. Uh, three months and uh, full-time yeah. uh yeah so um i i see, understand the difference now uh, i assume they get some sort of certificate at the end is do you use a particular um platform for certificates is, is it just your own like pdf file or is there some uh way that this is a recognized certificate i, I know it probably doesn't have a you know a educational institution stamp yeah. Google, uh, but but i think there are platforms out there for for certificates so how does that work
1: there are. So so really, we're not using any of those third-party platforms today. I mean, you are issued a certificate of completion at the end of one of those courses. I think the way we see most students use it is by appending sort of a badge or, you know, the symbol to their LinkedIn profile. And really what's, you know, over the, the decade that we've been in business, I think it's our partnerships with employers who go on to hire our grads that is really kind of the stamp of approval that, you know, by putting this on your LinkedIn or your resume, right, you're signaling to an employer, you know, that I've been through this training. And, and the good news is, I you mean, know, we, we work with over 5,000 companies, you know, hire GA grads. And so I think we've built a reputation over the years for, you know, delivering quality. We do that by, right, pairing our curriculum so closely with employer demand and evolving sure. it rapidly to make sure we're you know, delivering people with the skills that employers are most in need of, so that that education to employment pathway is as tight as possible. The employer recognition is kind of the the key, the key to that certificate or credential, if you will. Uh
0: uh-huh. You know, uh, I will give a plug though for uh, some someone I'll be talking to soon uh, about their platform. It's called a Credible.
1: Oh, I thought you were going to say Credly, yes. but cre- Credible. Okay.
0: A uh, credible, yeah. Incredible. So, uh, yeah. I, anyway, uh, I always like to hear about these uh, new twists on on uh, credentialing and um, having maybe micro credentials and so forth. So uh, that's pretty that's uh, pretty interesting. We talked a little about tuition and your sort of uh, partnerships. At uh, is has there been any thought to um, or any sort of uh, articulation? Agreements you you have with any um, community colleges, or any thoughts of being able to give academic credits at some
1: point? Yeah, uh, absolutely. We've we've had partnerships, you know, not kind of regularly, but we've had a handful of partnerships over the years where that have involved articulation agreements with particular you know institutions of you know more traditional higher educational institutions, and we've actually got a, a handful of those discussions newly underway today. I think it's about you know, figuring out where there's value. Like one of the things we're talking about about right now with an institution is high, I think long GA has thought about, it's been thought about as a capstone, right? And so in traditional higher ed, how might you append GA to the end to help somebody quickly get into the workforce post-college or something like that, which is one That's model. Sure. One of the models that we've been talking about more recently is how might you get somebody through a GA program and into employment first, Then let them and count that towards degree, you know, count that as credit towards a degree completion, and then allow them to finish that degree once they're already employed and earn those additional credits over time, given that, you know, sort of employment being the key outcome, right, is, you know, getting them into that job as fast as possible, particularly for those who've been displaced by COVID. So that's the model we're actually talking about now. Is then, and then could they complete that degree over time once they're enrolled? I, I think there's a there's some interesting uh, work that that we're exploring on that front.
0: I was wondering, you know, for uh, a lot of companies will pay tuition for their students uh, of completing their master's uh, program. Do any of institutions that you work with do they pay for the tuition for for their students? Yeah. So. Or their employees.
1: So that looks. Uh, yes, definitely. And I think we'll move to more and more employer pay over time. I think that's definitely the direction of travel. About 50% of the students who come to our part-time program, so those are more like 60-hour, either condensed one week or over, you know, kind of like a couple nights a week for 10 weeks, about 50% of our students in those programs are sponsored by their employers, so really, okay. the, the cost for those is more in the three to four thousand dollar range. So a lot of those are people who are coming to us; they're they're already employed, and their employer is paying for them to come, you know, for you know, as part of a you know a training budget or or you know whatever sort of benefits that that employer provides. Sure or are willing to reimburse, right, for a job-related training. You know, separately, right, we also sell training directly into companies who are looking to up and reskill people who will work with them. So, you know, we work with over a third of the Fortune 500, and we work with, you know, over 400 enterprise clients to, you know, do some pretty large-scale re-upskilling programs where, you know, that's often, you know, a company is going through a large digital transformation. They're thinking about the cost of building versus buying their talent and making the calculus that it's actually more cost effective to invest in the people that they have and and sort of better from culture and morale perspective to invest in the talent that they have versus, you know, laying off people and, you know, in large rifts and rehiring and kind of all that stuff. So I I think employer pay is a trend that's going to continue to increase The one area where we don't really see employer pay today is with our immersive programs, those career change programs, because people, you know, you have to be out of work to do one of those programs. Basically, you have to, you know, it's a full time. So you can't really be working while you do that. But even that, I I see shifting over time as employers kind of want more bespoke talent pipelines that they pay on spec, essentially, for access to immersive graduates from GA Uh
0: You know, speaking yeah. of COVID, I was wondering if you, did you see an uptick in the number of immersive uh, programs going we on should, because we, we people sure, out of work?
1: Yeah, we sure did. We saw about a 30% year over year wow. growth in our immersive programs from 19 to 20 in that. Yeah. Uh,
0: years ago, I remember uh, hearing a statistic that uh, education paid for by industry was much greater than... Higher education. I I I don't know. If that's still the case, but it seems like it may very well be that there's I've, a lot of training and education between the military and government. I you know I've seen industry. that
1: that stat rings a bell with me too. I can't pull. I can't for the life of me like remember the specific numbers. But it was something like you know the number of you know billions or whatever spent by in by the government and in higher ed and workforce plus you know as against the amount spent by you know, employers on training, it, and it was larger. So I, I'll see if I can find that stat. But yeah, I've, I've I've seen that too. There's a lot of money being deployed, suffice to say. And certainly,
0: uh, uh I mean, the way technology changes and the growth and the uh, research and, and science, and certainly uh we're, we're so technology driven these days, it's, it's no wonder. It seems like you're in a sweet spot for for that sort of... Uh,
1: yeah. And as we know, right, also COVID is a accelerated those trends even faster. That journey that digital of digital transformation for most companies has only been accelerated over the past year. so we see you know even in our our enterprise business more and more demand for uh, the types of you know programs that we offer.
0: I don't know if it's still the case today. Uh, my institution is not a technical institution but we have plenty of them in the Philadelphia area where we are. And uh, traditionally, I, I remember hiring co-ops uh, from uh, uh, computer science departments mm-hmm. and so forth. And it seemed that at least higher ed seemed to have the reputation that uh, they were sort of behind the times. They weren't keeping up with the, the latest programming languages and kids and, and spent time learning uh, languages that nobody was using when out in the real world. So. Hopefully that's not still the case, but I can see that uh, what you're doing is certainly adding a tremendous amount of value. Is Is there anything that comes to mind, uh, anything you would like to, to tell higher education folks, whether they're uh, educators or administrators in terms of uh, where things are going and, and how you fit in?
1: Yeah, I mean, listen, I would say the model of GA was able to come into being, right? Because there was a need that wasn't being met by traditional education, traditional higher education, and that we would get computer science grads who would come to GA to say, "I learned the theory, but I didn't learn the link, You know, as you just as you said, I didn't learn the sort of the languages that when I show up to a job on day one, an employer is going to expect me to know to be able to code it. You know, like those types of things. So, so that story is real. But I look at this as you know, GA is a complement to the higher ed system that we have, it's not, I don't think, any time in the near future a replacement for. And so to me, the message to higher ed is how do we think about innovative ways to partner and collaborate? Because you know what? Like there's a place for lots of different entry points for lots of different people. One could easily come to GA and skip a college degree. And we do see that. We, we see 18-year-olds. It's not the norm, but we do see it. Who go right into employment. But a lot of the reason I think our candidates are are successful in the job search is that these are people with professional experience, even if it's in retail or food services or things like that, they're people who've worked in a professional environment before. And so we're bringing, even if they're junior relative to the field of study, they're bringing work experience to a job. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think... I'd love to have the conversation of how can a GA program enrich the programs of study that you already have? How do we help more people remove financial barriers, persist, get into high-wage employment? If there's a way that we can help with that story, whether it's, you know, by giving them credit for a GA program or giving them an off-ramp from a higher ed program into a job faster, like those are all those are all conversations that that we're interested in exploring.
0: Being a techie as I am, um... And you say you're doing mostly synchronous. Uh, do you use Zoom? We do. And and what you must have some content delivery. Do you have any learning management system that you use in conjunction with your
1: programs? so we have a, a proprietary LMS that we use in conjunction okay. with our programs? Yeah. So uh, the platform that we built called, you know, it's called MyGA, but you know, it's, that's uh-huh. the, the content delivery platform, but yeah, a okay. lot, I mean, a lot, most of the teaching is done on, zoom, you know, a lot of the teaching is done on zoom students can access materials on MyGA. but.
0: Well, I'll, I'll give another plug for someone who I just talked to, which is a class for zoom. Oh. I don't know if you yeah. saw that, but that's uh, developed by uh, Michael chase and former. CEO of of Blackboard. And it, mm-hmm. uh, I would love to get it into our institution. It looks like a, a great ad, uh, advance to the way people are using Zoom, you know, to really replicate more of a classroom feel.
1: Yeah, I am sure there are people who are closer to that than I that are probably already having that discussion. But yeah, no, I, I think, you know, listen, we're always... I think you know, GA is always as as we're always trying to be most responsive to market demand, labor market demand with our curriculum. We're also always trying to like you know bring the latest technology to ensure that you know you you are getting that community and classroom feeling, especially as we we don't foresee returning to campus at least in sort of the immediate next right. several months. <laughs> so yeah, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> yeah, that's the big question. But we're really we're, we're hopeful we're hopeful that. At some point in the fall, there'll be some sort of slow return, but we'll see.
0: Well, this has been great. I I appreciate your time today. I I learned a lot. I think uh, you're certainly filling an important uh, role and uh, look forward to uh, seeing your uh, your outfit grow and uh, maybe we can do some uh, collaboration uh, at some point.
1: That'd be great. Thanks so much. I appreciate the conversation.
0: Thank you. That's it for today's episode. I hope you learned a lot about General Assembly and the value proposition with companies such as this who help to enhance learning opportunities for students of all types. Stay tuned for the full song, Utopian Prince. Until next time, have a great week. That's it for today's episode. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to give Rod feedback. You can leave comments on his blog or send email to rod at rodspulsepodcast.com. The preceding audio commentary is the product of the author, Dr. Rodney Murray, and does not represent the official viewpoint of any other institution or company.